Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to podcast episode 21, where today we are going to be discussing cardiac tamponade, and that will pretty much end our cardiovascular section of our CCRN review, and we will be moving next into the respiratory section. So if you would like the lineup of respiratory topics that we are going to be covering, please head on over to my website, which is khoppypresents.com. And it will have a listing for you there of all of the respiratory related episodes that we're going to be uh, talking about in the month of December. Though For those of you that are new, welcome. My name is Kay Hoppy. And I thank you very much for joining me in this podcast episode. And I encourage you to go back through the other podcast episodes uh, through uh, 20 that basically explore the cardiovascular system. For those of you that have been with me for a while, thank you so much for joining me for another podcast episode. I have a few announcements before we get into today's content. The first one has to do with my online CCRN program, which I am targeting uh, for release in uh, January of 2022. So that will be available for purchase. And it basically is my two-day CCRN review course plus uh, plus more, uh, all online that you can take at your own pace. So I have fully illustrated PowerPoint slides along with the audio that goes with that. For each section, there's also, um, printable handouts. There's printable worksheets. At the very end of it, there is also a mock CCRN exam. This particular program is also going to be awarding continuing education hours. So you can study for your CCRN and earn continuing education hours all in one false swoop. You may also think about joining me on my Facebook page where I have the CCRN question of the day. So that also can help you prepare for your exam. Now, my um, Facebook page is at khoppy Presents, and every morning I put a question, a CCRN type of question on my page, and then later on in the evening, I answer that question with rationale. 
Another thing I'd like to announce is if you head over to my website, again at khoppypresents.com, you can uh, opt to subscribe in order to get a free basic dysrhythmia cheat sheet, which is printable. So that's something that you can use for your reference clinically. So that's available to you as well. Lastly, I am available in person or online for courses related to critical care nursing, whether it's the CCRN review or the PCCN review, Um, perhaps, you know, your hospital or your nursing group is interested in hosting a course, please give me a call if there's any way that I can help you. My phone number is listed on my website as well as my contact information. So guys, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into talking about cardiac tamponade. Now we're going to start out with a definition and we're going to move from there into etiologic factors. So in terms of a working definition, tamponade can be, uh, or cardiac tamponade, I should be very specific here because we are talking about the heart. It can be defined as a collection of fluid in the pericardial sac that impairs filling. So really, when you talk about cardiac tamponade, you're talking about a filling defect, not an emptying defect. Probably one of the best examples of an emptying defect would be the person in, you know, left ventricular failure and pulmonary edema may be related, let's just say, to an MI. That is an issue with emptying or the ability to um, project blood volume forward, okay? So we're talking here about a problem with filling. And what happens is, of course, we have the pericardial sac that's full of fluid. Now, this fluid might be blood. It could be inflammatory fluid related to an effusion, or it could be pus. Fluid is fluid is fluid because the bottom line is, is that it's compressing the heart chambers on all sides, preventing the heart from being able to fill appropriately. Obviously, if it doesn't have enough filling volume, the resulting emptying or systolic volume is going to be much less as well. And that is what's going to impair our cardiac output and index. So tamponade can be best thought of as hemodynamic compromise related to the fluid in the pericardial sac rather than the exact amount of fluid that's present. And another thing that we have to take into consideration is timing. And that is the amount of time it took for that fluid to accumulate in the pericardial sac. We can see patients with neoplasia, for example, that can slowly over a period of time develop a huge amount of fluid in the pericardial sac. And they don't have hemodynamic uh, compromise until they hit a critical volume. And at that point, we start to see the compromise. We start to see them develop hypotension and dyspnea and all of those things that go with it. But sometimes it's crazy the amount of fluid somebody can have 
in a pericardial sac that has developed over a long period of time. Now compare that with somebody that develops tamponade related to trauma. Now in those people, you can see that they develop tamponade much more quickly because the fluid accumulation in the pericardial sac occurs over a much shorter period of time. So not only is it the amount of fluid in the pericardial sac that leads to hemodynamic compromise, but how fast that fluid accumulated. Now, when you look at where it falls in terms of the shock spectrum, we know that cardiac tamponade technically is an obstructive form of cardiogenic shock. So obstruction to inward flow or obstruction to filling related to, you know, related to fluid in the, in the pericardial sac in this particular case of tamponade, it could also be related to a uh, hemomediastinum where great vessels are compressed and, you know, we have problems related to obstruction that affect filling. So that's just kind of our working definition of cardiac tamponade. So let's take a look at some of the etiologic factors here. We might have a patient with blunt or penetrating trauma, somebody post heart surgery, could be somebody post MI. We certainly could have perforation of the myocardium by things we do to patients like inserting transvenous pacing wires, invasive catheters into the heart, like the pulmonary artery catheter, cardiac needle biopsy. Any one of those things could cause perforation and accumulation of fluid in the pericardial sac. Also think about the patient post CPR or the patient that has received fibrinolytic therapy. They are another uh, group of patients that are at risk for cardiac tamponade. We could have rupture of the great vessels, a dissecting aortic aneurysm, malignancy, or the effects of radiation therapy. We could also have somebody that has tamponade related to a connective tissue disease, such as rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, or scleroderma. There also could be some metabolic factors that relate to or are etiologic factors for the development of tamponade, and that includes renal failure, hepatic failure, or myxedema. And then last but not least, pericarditis. I'm sure you've noticed anybody that's ever admitted with pericarditis always gets an echo. And we do an echo in order to see if there's a pericardial effusion. And the effusion is really going to determine whether or not this patient goes on to develop hemodynamic compromise. So, you know, pericarditis, that's the person that comes in with sharp stabbing type chest pain. They really don't want to lay back for you to listen to their heart. They want to sit bolt upright. So they describe their pain as being typically very severe. 
And what relieves the pain is an anti-inflammatory, but all the while that the patient has inflammation in their pericardium, inflamed tissue draws fluid toward it. And so if fluid accumulates in the pericardial sac, that might just walk your patient right down the road to cardiac tamponade. Now, how does the patient look? Well, first of all, you know, if the patient can, you know, subjectively speak to you, you know, versus somebody like post-heart patients that might still be tubed and on a ventilator, the patient can uh, describe their chest as feeling full or, or that they have chest pain, full, heavy, they're dyspneic, particularly when laying back. So you'll find that this group of patients will want to be sitting upward. They're anxious and then they have that feeling of impending doom, which is something that clinically we never want to see. Now they become tachycardic early and later they become bradycardic going into PEA or pulseless electrical activity. So that bradycardia is kind of that precursor or that warning sign that PEA might be on its way. We see a patient that is hypotensive and has a narrowed pulse pressure. So again, pulse pressure is defined as the difference between systolic and diastolic pressure. They also have pulses paradoxus. And pulses paradoxus is best seen with an arterial catheter, an arterial line. And what we see is that with each inspiration, we see a decrease in systolic pressure of at least 10 millimeters of mercury. Now, normally for you and for me, as we inspire, we have an increase in flow back to the heart. But when we have cardiac tamponade, what we see is, is that the heart is not able to accommodate that increase in flow related to that increase in negativity, which we call, of course, inspiration. And therefore the systolic pressure will drop at least 10 millimeters of mercury associated with inspiration because it can't handle, handle the increase in flow. We'll see jugular venous distension in many cases, but keep in mind, we're not talking about all cases here. And the reason for that is because we might have somebody that's bleeding out and they're very hypotensive. And if they're hypotensive, they're not going to have jugular venous distension that reaches out and grabs you by the throat. An absent PMI. Now remember, PMI is point of maximal impulse. Some people learned it as point of maximal intensity. It doesn't matter. How we assess it is by palpation. And the normal PMI should be located at the fifth intercostal space, left midclavicular line. It should be about the size of a quarter or maybe half dollar. And so that rep represents the apex of the heart hitting up against the chest wall. And so what we see when the pericardium is full of fluid is we don't feel that PMI at the fifth intercostal, fifth intercostal space left midclavicular line. It 
is absent. And as we listen to the patient's um, heart sounds, we find the heart sounds to be distant, muffled, or even absent. There is a triad of symptoms that is known as Beck's triad, which is uh, kind of a, a hallmark triad that you think of when you think of cardiac tamponade, and that includes hypotension, distended neck veins, and muffled heart tones. That's called Beck's triad. But you have to keep in mind that that distended neck vein thing is only going to happen when a patient um, is not volume depleted and not hypotensive. Okay. So again, in a bleeding out patient, you're not going to see those neck veins becoming distended. You might have a patient post cardiac surgery that has been having a continuous amount of drainage over the last few hours. And very abruptly that drainage stops in addition to some of these other signs and symptoms, well, then we really need to be mindful of the possibility of cardiac tamponade. We also have hemodynamic and diagnostic findings that go along with that. So what we see in terms of hemodynamic parameters is we see that the central venous pressure or right atrial pressure will climb. It will climb within five of the pulmonary artery diastolic and the pulmonary artery occlusive pressure, which of course we call wedge pressure. So that is known as equalization of chamber pressures. And that's really going to be an important thing to know for the CCRN exam is the fact that the chamber pressures equalize. We also have pulses paradoxes that we can see on that arterial pressure waveform. And I just explained that to you a few moments ago. But again, since it's part of our hemodynamic parameters, we would be looking at that waveform as well. Another waveform change that we can see in a patient with kind of a restrictive type of issue like tamponade is compressing on all the chambers of the heart, we can see elevated, sometimes giant A and V waves in the pulmonary artery occlusive waveform tracing in your wedge, elevated A and V waves. Now, remember, you know, when you talk about A and V waves regarding to the wedge pressure tracing, the A wave represents atrial contraction because guys, the A and V waves are nothing more than little waves that occur as the atria contract and relax. So the A wave is nothing more than a little positive wave that occurs as the atria contract volume down into the ventricles, whereas the V wave represents a time when the atria are relaxing and filling. And so since the atria have issues around both filling and emptying appropriately or normally during cardiac tamponade, we see some big pressure elevations in both the A and the V wave. And what that makes your wedge waveform look like is it makes your wedge look like an M, the letter M. 
And of course, the first hump of the letter M is the big A wave. And the second uh, positive deflection or hump of the M wave is uh, the V. And so that represents resistance to atrial contraction and filling. We'll see also a decrease in cardiac output and index, as well as an increase in SVO2. Along with that, of course, we're going to see an increase in SVR. So we get in there with our diagnostic studies, and um, I'm just going to list some of those for you. And one of the big ones is chest x-ray. With a chest x-ray, we're looking for a widened mediastinum, uh, dilated superior vena cava, and an enlarged heart. You know, since we think about bleeding in, for example, a post-op heart patient, we're also looking at H&H as one of our diagnostic studies. As far as the ECG is concerned, we may see diffuse ST segment elevation across all of the precordial leads. Now remember, the precordial leads are the ones that are V1 through V6. We may also, again, you know, concentrating on that ECG, we can see a decrease in QRS amplitude or height across the precordium, or we might even see electrical alternans. And that's where the QRS amplitude varies from beat to beat. So we have a large and a small and a large and a small QRS. And that's basically because this heart is kind of moving around and in this big, huge sack of fluid. It almost has like a pendulum effect inside this big old bag of fluid, which we know to be, of course, the pericardium. Tachycardia initially progressing to bradycardia, and we said that bradycardia can be a precursor to the development of pulseless electrical activity. Certainly ventricular arrhythmias are a possibility, and we're going to do an echo. And what we see is echo-free space between the pericardium and the epicardium. So between the sac and the outermost surface of the heart, as well as right atrial and right ventricular collapse. Now, what are the management strategies that we're going to use for somebody with pericardial tamponade? Of course, airway and oxygenation, that's extremely important. Then we got to get volume going, volume replacement. And so if the patient is bleeding, of course, if it's a, a heart patient that's bleeding, we need to take him back to surgery, all the while giving volume in order to try and enhance filling because filling is an issue. And because filling is an issue, emptying will be a problem. And when the ventricle can't empty, your blood pressure tanks, cardiac output tanks, and so on. So getting a couple of large bore IVs in place, if there is not adequate access for the patient is really important. And we're looking at giving the patient, I mean, opening up fluids. We're looking at 200, 500 cc's of fluid over 10 to 15 minutes in order to try and increase filling. Blood, blood product replacement also as needed. 
We may incorporate an inotrope. That really depends. You know, it depends upon what your patient's blood pressure is. Um, pericardial synthesis. Also, we have to think about that where we're going to go in subxiphoid and we're going to pull fluid out of the pericardial sac. And then the final thing I want to bring up about cardiac tamponade is once we manage what's going on in the pericardial sac, say we do a pericardial synthesis to draw the fluid out, we have to look at the causative factor, right? So whatever is causing the bleed, whatever is causing the fluid, we have to deal with that because while dealing with or managing the acute tamponade is critically important, if we don't look at the underlying cause, we're going to find ourselves back in the same position within a matter of time. So guys, I hope you enjoyed this uh, short podcast actually on cardiac tamponade. Once again, please come to my website, pick up the free basic dysrhythmia cheat sheet and continue. I hope you'll continue to follow me in uh, future podcasts. We are now going to be starting the respiratory system and that will start with podcast episode 22. Have a blessed day, everybody. Bye-bye.